wrongful convictions are real, and this podcast illuminates a lot of the reasons why they happen. In a lot of cases, all you have is circumstantial evidence. And so when you look at the other uh, evidence, albeit circumstantial, that corroborates that testimony, I think that's enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. And they don't test the physical evidence recovery kit, and they don't test the rope near her body, and they don't test the DNA that's on the lip of a liquor bottle. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside a blizzard-ridden Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Lost Sites and another blog called Media Law. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and warm 83 degrees in Southern California (laughs) and uh, formerly of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. (laughs) And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Uh, and, and this is why we got paired on this show, Craig, just so you can torture me uh, on a regular basis. Well, uh, so I moved here, Bob. Before we introduce today's topic, I just want to take uh, a moment to thank our show's sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management program for uh, lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. And recently, the Maryland Court of Special Appeals granted Adnan Syed's request for review of his murder conviction of some 15 years. And then in his case, we're the subject of a wildly popular podcast series called Serial, which was hosted by Sarah Koenig. And it boasted an average of 1.5 million listeners per episode. Season one of Serial told the story of Adnan's case centering around the 1999 Baltimore area murder of his ex-girlfriend, Hey Min Lee. Syed, who was then 17 years old, soon became a person of interest. And in this 12-part podcast series, uh, host and executive producer Sarah Koenig walks us through the events and accounts that eventually led to the murder conviction of Adnan Syed. The central theme of each episode is really whether or not Adnan actually did it. Uh, In addition, there's with some controversy raised about his legal defense, uh, leading many to question the validity of of, uh, of his conviction. Well, and here to talk about the case, Bob, we would like to first welcome Professor Deirdre Enright. For those who have listened to Serial, you might recognize her from Episodes 7 and 12. She is the Director of Investigation for the University of Virginia School of Law's Innocence Project Clinic, which helped investigate Adnan's case. Prior to her work at the university, Deirdre was she worked at the Virginia Capital Representation Resource Center, where she represented clients and consulted on cases in all stages of capital litigation, with primary focus on federal and state post-conviction proceedings and Supreme Court certs. Welcome, Professor Enright. Thank you for having me. And in addition today, joining us is Erica Zunkel. Uh, Erica Zunkel is a clinical instructor in the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. Previously, she was a trial attorney at the Federal Defenders of San Diego, 
for over six years, where she represented indigent defendants accused of federal felony offenses uh, in the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. Recently, uh, in Jermaine today's discussion, she was uh, among those featured in a Marshall Project article that weighed in uh, on Adnan's guilt or innocence based on what we heard in the Serial Podcast series. So uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer Erica Zunkel. Thanks so much for having me. And last but not least, we have joining us Mr. Marcus Kiprios. He is currently a partner for Pennington Hill, a civil litigation firm in Fort Worth, Texas. Prior to that, he worked for the Texas Prosecutors Association in Austin, Texas, where he assisted prosecutors with complex criminal procedure issues. Mr. Kiprios was also featured in the Marshall Project article and weighed in on Adnan's guilt or innocence. Well, welcome to the show, Mr. Kiprios. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, as uh, as our listeners are going to be well aware and our guests are going to be well aware, I think public reaction uh, to a crime based on uh, news coverage and other media events can be quite different from uh, what the jury hears in the courtroom and, and what happens in the courtroom. But uh, we want to start with uh, a question first to uh, uh, Ms. Zunkel and, and Mr. Kiprios. Uh, based on this Marshall Project article. Uh, uh, and, and in that article, both of you uh, kind of weighed in uh, on, on your ultimate conclusion based on the evidence as it was discussed uh, through the podcast serial. Uh, so I just want to ask you uh, to, to talk here a little bit about uh, how you came down on uh, Nan Syed's guilt or, uh, or innocence uh, based uh, based on what you heard. So, uh, Erica Zunkel, let's start with you. Well, I think it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting question, um, and, and I think of it in two ways. Uh, you know, there's thinking about it in terms of whether Adnan Syed was factually innocent, um, which is something that Professor Enright and her clinic are looking into. And then there's really the question of, you know, what we're testing in the criminal justice system, and that is not whether Adnan is is factually innocent, but whether the government, you know, proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and in that respect, I certainly come down on Adnan Syed is, is not guilty. Uh, Serial raised so many doubts, um, so many reasonable doubts about what happened uh, after the fact. And it was certainly interesting to hear about cell phone records that weren't challenged. Much of really you know, evidence that went back to, in my mind, a, a failure on the part of the defense attorney in this case to vigorously investigate and have a defense theory um, for why Adnan was not guilty. And, uh, and Marcus, what about you? Uh, let's hear from you on that. I agree with uh, a lot of what Ms. Zunkel said, and um, really I approached it a little bit differently in that uh, Mr. Saeed had already been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, and I was giving great deference to the jury because they were able to hear all of the evidence and assess the credibility of the witnesses. Um, and it was great storytelling from Sarah, but I didn't ever hear anything to me that exonerated um, or uh, was exculpatory to the point where I thought, oh, well, he definitely didn't do it. And, and I sort of shifted the burden back because based on the podcast, I, I certainly understand where people um, don't think that based on the evidence presented by Sarah, that Adnan is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but I don't know that we necessarily had the same case presented to us that the prosecution did at trial. 
Um, and so that's why my initial leaning there was, uh, I'll trust the jury there. They were able to hear it all. And, uh, until I hear more for me, he was guilty. Well, Deirdre, your innocence project volunteered to research Adnan's case. So where do you come out on it? I feel like I have a reaction that sort of encompasses what, um, both Marcus and Erica said. And, um, I don't take a position at this point because we have only done, you know, a quarter of what we will do in the end, hopefully. Um, what I've tried to do is see it. I return the presumption of innocence to our clients when we begin. Um, and Sarah got me there um, relatively easily with the number of things that she has uncovered. And I agree too that some of them may well turn out to be red herrings that are neither are interesting but not relevant. Um, but it concerned me enormously when I found the physical evidence that existed and that had never been tested. So when you have um, a woman who's murdered and, potent- and and maybe even other crimes, we don't know, and they don't test the physical evidence recovery kit and they don't test the rope near her body and they don't test the DNA that's on the lip of a liquor bottle next to her and they have a hair on her body and it belongs to neither her or Adnan. Um, That to me (laughs) concerns me enormously and until I have those results, um, which will then sort of drive our investigation plan after that, I certainly um, put him in the category of people who um, I'm concerned were wrongfully convicted. The uh, Anand's defense counsel, uh, Christina Gutierrez, died since since the trial in this case and was not interviewed as part of the uh, serial podcast. But the podcast paints a, I think, a troubling picture of of the defense presented. I mean, we we talk about evidence uh, not looked at, uh, witnesses not interviewed. Uh, there was uh, long snippets in the podcast of, of her cross-examination uh, of witnesses that sounded like uh, kind of droning uh, and, and was put in the context of perhaps boring the jury to death. I wonder, from the three of your perspective, who've been in the courtroom, who've, who've tried these kinds of cases, watched these kinds of cases, how you feel uh, the counsel was portrayed in this podcast and, and whether Adnan did get a, a good defense? Well, so it, subsequent to, to the trial, it was learned that she, the defense counsel was very sick and um, died not that long after the trial. And I don't know if that is relevant yet, and that's another area that um, we want to go down. But it seems that ignoring an alibi or not pursuing an alibi and uh, not looking closely at the physical evidence and talking to your client about whether or not it should be tested. Um, And uh, one person actually mentioned to me that they thought the first trial that ended in a mistrial um, was going much better than the second trial. And I have to imagine that the stress and strain, particularly when you're ill, and to to do one trial like that, have it end in a mistrial and then quickly start the second one, that she was, um, you know, under considerable strain. Um, certainly her tone during the cross-examinations that we've heard, you know, are uh, not helpful to, were not helpful to her client. Um, 
and I think, you know, just listening to them <laughs> is difficult, much less being subjected to them in person. Um, and up front, I, I felt like her cross-examination of Jay Wilds ultimately made you feel sympathetic to him. Um, yeah. So I think that the defense was definitely compromised, and I'm not, I can't decide yet where to lay that blame. Um, I know that uh, people who knew her in in her better days said she was fantastic. So it seems something was horribly wrong during this trial. Yeah, Erica, Marcus, do you, do you have thoughts on that? I feel pretty strongly that Adnan did not get a, a good defense in this case. And of course, listening to it as a criminal defense attorney, I, I zeroed in on, on all the things that, that sort of made me really uncomfortable with, with what happened. And, and, as Professor Enright says, there were certainly things going on in her personal life with her health. Um, this was an incredibly stressful trial. Nonetheless, if that's what you're dealing with and that's what you're going through, you owe it to your client to not continue the representation if you don't think that you can do what needs to be done. And it sounds like at one point she she did approach cases, you know, with a tenacity and a thoroughness of knowing what needed to be done. But here, one of the most stunning things to me was, and, and I don't remember what episode this was in, but Adnan was being interviewed about uh, Ms. Gutierrez's representation. And he obviously has a lot of fondness for her. Um, but, but he said something to me that was so, so telling. And that is, you know, she never really told me what her strategy was. She never told me what her plan was. And that in this type of a case is is inexcusable. You need to be talking to, you know, your client about, for example, does he want to testify? You need to, to go over that with him. That's that's his right to testify if he wants to. Certainly investigating an alibi witness, but also hiring, you know, expert witnesses that can review the cell tower records. Uh, failing to analyze or hire someone to review the physical evidence. Those, to me, um, add up to somebody not getting the vigorous and zealous defense that, that they were uh, owed under the Constitution. Well, Marcus, what's, the, what's your sense of uh, the timelines that were reported by Jay Wilds and, and the alibi that was uh, supposedly to be provided by Asia McLean? They're has been some discussion of that so far, but what's your sense of those things? How do, how do they fit into whether Adnan got a fair trial? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think you can listen to this and not think that Jay had contradictory statements. You can call it lies, if you will. Um, the timeline, I think, is off uh, when you really try and go back and put it all together. But that being said, when you have someone like a witness like Jay who is involved in the crime. Um, these people, these co-defendants or these people, like I said, who are involved tend to sort of distance themselves and they want to distance themselves and they know what they've done here um, is a crime. I mean, in this case, Jay helped bury a body. And so he's trying to minimize his involvement. But ultimately, that for me is a credibility issue in what the jury gets to hear and decide. And I just think that's important to point out because Jay, what we know of him, is not really a likable person. 
uh, in the limited time that we've gotten to know him. And I think when you're prosecuting a case and you've got someone like Jay um, who on his face is not likable and who's a co-defendant and who obviously is involved in this crime in some way, it's difficult to convince the jury of what they're saying and that the testimony they're giving is accurate. It's an uphill battle, and in this case, the jury heard that. They looked him in the eye, they assessed his credibility, and they believed him. Um, and so that's, again, why I often just defer to them. Uh, is the timeline off? Probably. Or are some of his statements off? Probably. But that's just the nature of, of who Jay is here. And ultimately, um, again, the jury heard that and made their decision. Before we continue our discussion, we need to take a short break. We're going to be back uh, in just a few moments to hear more from our legal experts discussing the podcast serial. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. With us today is my co-host Bob Ambrosi and Professor Deirdre Enright, Erica Zunkel, and Marcus Kiprios. Before the break, we were discussing some of the testimony that was offered by Jay Wilds and the jury's evaluation of his credibility. Marcus, I'll turn back to you about what role do you think the uh, lack of an alibi played in this case? Well, I think it was big. I think, uh, you know, if you really look at it, probably 75, 80%, that's just a random number I'm assigning, uh, of this case came down to the testimony of Jay Wilds. Uh, and uh, you don't always have an alibi. Uh, you don't always have video of the crime scene. And a lot of jurors these days with the CSI effect, they want that. Uh, it makes it more difficult uh, to prosecute these cases. But in a lot of cases, all you have is circumstantial evidence. And so, yes, most of it is uh, Jay Wilde's testimony. But then I think when you look at the other uh, evidence, albeit circumstantial, that corroborates that testimony, I think that's enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, and I, I think that's where the jury ended up. Of course, it, it was interesting because so much of the show uh, kind of focused, uh, the show's opened in the first episode, uh, kind of talking about Adnan's inability to really account well for where he was during the critical time period. Uh, Deirdre Enright, I'm wondering what, what you make of that. I mean, how, how common is that in a case like this? I mean, the other side that was presented during the, during the podcast was that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the events that surround something like this uh, do 
cause memories to, to gel. Uh, you know, the fact that, that uh, a murder was committed, that somebody went missing, that police were calling, uh, do help to solidify memories. So what's your take on, on the recall issue in this case? So a lot of our cases have this issue, right, that the um, that you have young people who do not live their lives by a clock <laughs> and who sometimes at certain hours of the day, a lot of people don't have alibis other than I was asleep, which never works. Um, and the, the difficult part in this for me is that they very quickly realized she was missing and not much time had gone by before they found her. So um, focusing on where a lot of people were probably focusing on where they were when this happened. That said, and I'm just going to turn back to Jay a little bit. um, He concerns me, not just because of what Marcus was saying about that so much of the case rested on him, but we've had many, many cases where the person who's sort of red-handed and a co-defendant is being pushed to give up someone else. And and in one particular capital case in Virginia, he was pushed, uh, a co-defendant was pushed not just to give up someone else, but to give up a specific someone else. And um, when he tried to volunteer the correct co-defendants, he was redirected to, no, no, we've got you red-handed, and what we're looking at is this person, X, and that's who you need to, to give us in order to escape jail or prison time. So to me, Jay might in fact be in that situation, right? Where the time we don't know about the first interviews and the first hours of interviews. And it concerns me that that might've happened in this case, that Jay was, you know, allowed to evade responsibility by saying, how about the old boyfriend? What do you think uh, generally of Adnan's uh, appearance as a Muslim, uh, Pakistani descent, it's mentioned frequently during the podcast. Do we have uh, a racist issue or some xenophobia that you think played any role in his conviction? One thing that troubled me a lot was that because motive was a problem, that they went, uh, the law enforcement uh, obtained a report from a person who said, let me explain how his religion drives this and you know he his girlfriend broke up with him and his honor was being challenged and he couldn't live in a world where um, he had been rejected in this way and therefore he had to kill her Um, which (laughs) the report was saying this is a you know common for people you know who believe his religion and and of course he was no more subscribing to the religion at that point in time you know he was a high school kid. He was raised in this country. He was smoking pot, playing sports, drinking. Um, the, the idea that, that his religious beliefs drove him strikes me as hugely problematic and, um, and a substitute for evidence. Eric, I wonder if, if I could ask you the, something uh, the, the podcast brought home uh, again and again is, is that nobody really had kind of any alternative alternative theory for what might have happened in this case or who might have done it in this case. As a criminal defense lawyer, how important is it that you have something like that? Is that, is that something you need in order to stage a defense? Well, Bob, that's typically called the Saudi defense. Some other dude did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it, it seems like that's what 
Christina Gutierrez was was trying to do with some success in the first trial and more or less just to, you know, throw stuff out there and say, you know, Jay's not credible. Um, there was the guy, the guy that they interviewed who had been found, you know, in Lincoln Park near the body. Mr. S, I think they called him, right? Yeah, yeah. Mr. S. Um, and, and sometimes that that can work where the defense is, you know, the government has the burden. They haven't... Um, they haven't overcome the burden. We don't have the burden of proving that, uh, you know, Adnan is, is innocent and, and therefore, you know, you should find him not guilty. I do think that based on what the jurors said in this case um, afterwards, which is, you know, we were waiting for him to take the stand. We wanted to hear his side of the story, um, that type of thing. I mean, it, it certainly is common to have that kind of, reaction, I think, in spite of how jurors are instructed that they have to presume innocence and that they, you know, that that the defendant doesn't have a burden. I think that many people do think that. And that's why it's so important if you are the defense attorney to, to really think through what is the defense theory in this case? Are we putting it all on reasonable doubt? Are we um, going with the narrative of it was another person? Uh, that goes back to testing physical evidence. It could have been that if the physical evidence was tested back then and some of the, the people that um, Deirdre and her clinic are investigating now, it could have been that Christina Gutierrez, you know, could have said, it's this person who did it. And in that case, it probably wouldn't have even have made it to a trial because Adnan would have been exonerated by DNA. But I do think that jurors are are wanting stories and, and narratives that are clear, that are understandable, um, and, and that that really didn't happen in this case. Well, there was some mention earlier in our discussion about uh DNA evidence, and there's nothing so far uh, linking Adnan to the crime that he was convicted for. Uh, and you yourself talked about the CSI effect. How did that play out in the role with the jury to not have any DNA evidence, especially when there is presumably DNA that exists in some of the evidence that wasn't introduced? Did it confuse the jurors? Did they it was any post-conviction interviews? Uh, um, I'll, I'll chime in. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, no, no, sorry no, that. no. I was going to say all I remember is that Sarah had a couple of jurors on serial who clearly were speculating about issues that they'd been instructed not to um, <laughs> speculate about. But um, the DNA and the physical evidence um, was so uh, far removed from everyone's. I don't think it was on anyone's radar, and it remained off of people's radar even uh, when we came in, which was only last year, and I asked Sarah, well, what about physical evidence? And she said, no, there's not any. And the state post-conviction lawyer said, I don't think there's any physical evidence. And I think that everyone assumed that had there been any, it would have been presented or at least tested. Yeah, I, I agree with most of that. Uh, there really was a minimal DNA testing done. They did blood on Heyman Lee's shirt, um, which was turned out to be her blood. Uh, I would, and, and I have no doubt that Deirdre is going to file the motion later on. After, probably, I would think after the the appeal now is exhausted, um, to test some of that DNA, uh, and that's probably the most interesting thing after the fact. But we have an open crime scene here, which is in a park where 
people were traversing from the time that she was buried, you know, six weeks, people and animals, and there were bottles near the body that I'm sure they're going to ask to request a test. And the ultimately, though, the question is, what is exculpatory? And I agree with Deirdre in the sense that I think the hairs found on um, Heyman Lee should be tested as, as well as the rope. But I also wonder about just some of the other stuff around there. And uh, the DNA will be conclusive at the end of the day um, once once they take that. Uh, but I just wanted to, to point out those other issues. Before we wrap up, uh, get to the end of the show, I, I just I wanted to ask uh, all of you real quick if you'd thought at all about the perhaps the, the larger implications of, of this podcast. As I listened to it, uh, one of the things that struck me, uh, the, Sarah Koenig is obviously a very experienced journalist and, and producer, and I was struck listening to the show, a lot of the questions that she asked struck me as almost naive about the legal system. And then the more I thought about them, I, I thought, really, maybe maybe a lot of lawyers are just are just not asking the right questions. Uh, I'm wondering, this show has had something like 68 million, do- million downloads as of this week, from what I've heard. What, what do you think the implications of this might be in a, in a broader context? Apart from Adnan's case, are we going to start to see more of this kind of digging? Uh, is this a, a good thing for for the criminal justice system? Uh, any thoughts on that? I certainly hope that we do. Um, I think one of the things that's most interesting about this podcast is hearing non-lawyers delving in um, to, you know, a legal, a legal case and with all the, with all the naivete about it. I mean, it, it gave me some ideas about, you know, what can, what, what kinds of things, creative things can we do in our own cases and also reflect on what are some of the reasons that people um, are wrongfully convicted. And the takeaway for me with, with this case and, and Adnan's uh, appeal and the serial podcast in general is that wrongful convictions are, are real and this podcast illuminates a lot of the reasons why they happen, whether it's an overzealous prosecution, um, ineffective assistance of counsel, uh, lack of investigation, those things happen in so many cases. Adnan's is one of, of, of so many cases that, that should be taken a closer look at. Uh, and I'm sure that we'd find a lot of the things that, that we found in Adnan's case. Thanks. Marcus or Deirdre, any thoughts on that? I, I would just uh, quickly end with, I, I love the show and I love the format, but as Sarah established, it's very difficult to remember what happened six weeks ago, much less 15 years ago. And that's why I take a little bit of issue with recreating the case based on interviews and memories and perceptions now, because it's inevitable that people will remember things differently as has come out in these interviews. And Deirdre? I really enjoyed I really enjoyed how much everyone enjoyed it. I was stunned at how much everyone enjoyed it. Um because Adnan's case looks to me now and a year and a half ago, like um, many of our cases and many of our cases where we've proven a wrongful conviction. So, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, everyone has been wrongfully convicted, but I also realized that a lot of what Sarah did should have been done the first time. <laughs> and because then it wouldn't, 
you have this 12-year lapse with people forgetting and people dying and people being gone. And a lot of, in a lot of our cases, all we do is what should have been done the first time. And undoing a wrongful conviction is nearly impossible, um, whereas um, creating one is often because not enough was done. So I want everyone in the world to know that Adnam uh, may not be as shocking and infrequent as we'd like to think. Yeah, fascinating. Great, and thank you very much. Since we've just about reached the end of our program, we should wrap up and get your contact information. Uh, we'll treat that as the conclusion for the show. So, Marcus, how can our listeners reach out to you if they would like to get in touch with you? Oh, I'm I'm very scared of the public when they want to contact <laughs> me, but you can uh, always go to my uh, firm website. Uh, it has all of my information at phblaw.com and email me and... Uh, I'm an easy Google. There are not many Marcus Kiprioses in the United States. <laughs> Wonderful. Erica? I'm, I'm probably a, a pretty easy Google as well. Not a lot of Erica's uncles out there. Um, I have all my contact information up at the University of Chicago Law School website. My email is ezuncle at uchicago.edu. Great. And thank you. And Deidre? And um, I'm much like Erica. It's at the University of Virginia School of Law website. And even easier, I'm Deirdre at Virginia, written out, dot edu. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, thanks again to our guests for taking the, the time uh, to share their insights about Serial with us. It was a really interesting show. Thanks to all of you for being on the show today. For our listeners, join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.